a century ago, the founders of quantum physics, Einstein and Bohr and Heisenberg and Planck and Schrodinger, had not the slightest practical application in mind. They were not trying to make a better toaster or anything like that. They wanted to understand the nature of light and the existence of atoms, the stability of atoms. And there were some other issues as well, but those were two of the main ones. And they developed this whole new type of physics, quantum physics, just out of their curiosity-driven research. Now, you fast forward one century to today, and you cannot imagine today's world, today's high-tech world, without an understanding of quantum physics, of nanophysics. You know, we have the half-billion transistors on the head of a pin now, all of our electronic devices, any, any object that has a laser in it, et cetera, et cetera. That's all quantum physics, you know? And yet, it's the aftermath of a bunch of people sitting around trying to figure out the nature of light and the stability of atoms, issues that were not at all of practical importance at the time. Wow, you know? Welcome to Steamcast, where STEM and the arts collide. I'm your host, Dan Kostelik, and together we're going to have conversations with the brightest lights and rising stars in the fields of science, technology, engineering, the arts, and math. Exploring the world that we live in, the science that makes it all possible, and the art that makes it interesting. This is episode 14, the second part of our two-part conversation with astrophysicist Dr. Alex Filipenko, chair of the Astronomy Department at the University of California, Berkeley. Our conversation today goes into the discovery of gravitational waves, which is another feather in the cap for Albert Einstein, go you, and the practical applications of theoretical physics. We had some really big scientific news over the last few years with the LIGO results um, proving uh, the existence of gravitational waves. Could you talk yeah, a bit about fan- that? Fantastic. You know, uh, I think in my, my first STEAM, Fibonacci STEAM conference, I talked about the dark energy and the accelerating universe. Mm-hmm. And in my second one, I talked about the discovery of gravitational waves. So these are some of the big topics in, in astrophysics and indeed in all of science. Gravitational waves are ripples in the shape of space and time produced when two objects orbit each other and particularly when they merge. Now, that was a a real mouthful of a sentence. What What do I mean by ripples in the shape of space and time? Well, Einstein's theory of general relativity is a theory of gravity, and it basically says that The reason Earth orbits the sun is that the sun's mass produces an actual warp, uh, sort of a curve in the shape of space around it. And then Earth moves along its natural path through that intrinsically curved space. And that is what gravity actually is, kind of an interesting concept. And that's been tested in many ways, and we've never found a failure on on large scales, on macroscopic scales of Einstein's general relativity. Well, when you have two objects, each with a warp of space around them, orbiting each other, then these warps interact with each other, and they produce sort of a ripple going out, a spiral-shaped pattern of the shape of space and also the passage of time going out from it. 
And it almost looks like a, a sprinkler, you know, a lawn sprinkler looked at from above. It goes, chick, 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 chick. and the water, as it gets progressively farther away, is not at the location where the little spout is at that moment. You know, the spout is uh, shooting out some water at that moment. But a few seconds earlier, the water that was shot out is now along a different radial path because the sprinkler has rotated. So you get this kind of a spiral shape if you look, look at it from above. Well, in a similar way, you get this spiral-shaped pattern of waves moving outward when you have two dense stars, in particular neutron stars, which are very dense stars, or black holes that are the dead remnants of, of stars, certain types of massive stars. Anyway, these things merge together and they emit progressively stronger and higher frequency gravitational waves. And there are detectors now on Earth called LIGO, Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory, and in Italy, a counterpart, a counterpart called Virgo. And they have now detected these little waves, and they're very, very small. They create a small disturbance in the shape of space that's about one one-thousandth of the size of a proton over a length of four kilometers. I mean, that's just unbelievably small. And yet these four kilometer long arms were able to detect this one one thousandth of a proton deviation in a very clever and mechanically ingenious way. So that detection first in 2015 and then many times since then, and then in August of 2017, the detection of not just merging black holes, but merging neutron stars, which also created a flash of light that was seen. This was all just an absolutely fantastic uh, turn of events in, in astrophysics. Uh, just wonderful. It proves the existence of gravitational waves, thus putting another feather in the hat of general relativity. And in the case of the merging neutron stars, it's the first and thus far only detection of both gravitational waves and electromagnetic radiation, that is, light from the same source. So that was just a watershed moment. It's a big watershed moment, as you just said, in astrophysics, putting another feather in the cap of general relativity. So way to go, Einstein. Absolutely. But overall, what does that mean? What does that mean for scientific advancement? Well, you know, it means that we have a better, more complete understanding of the way in which the universe works. And that is an amazing achievement for humans. You know, we don't know of any other animals that can do this kind of abstract thinking, and certainly they can't make machines with which to do experiments. So... This is one of the things that makes us human, the a desire to answer questions, the curiosity to ask questions, and the ability to answer them. So that's one good thing. The second is that discoveries like this, and images from the Hubble Space Telescope, and uh, all kinds of new phenomena that are found out about the universe that might not have any immediate practical application, nevertheless excite people, and especially they excite kids. And kids then are more likely to study science and technology, and most won't become professional astrophysicists. That's okay. You don't need a lot of us in the world at a given time. But they're more likely to pursue science and technology and thus go into fields that are more immediately useful to society, such as engineering, applied physics, medical physics, computer science, those kinds of fields. 
elements that I think most people would agree are useful immediately to society. So that's another useful aspect of this kind of research. And then finally, you never know what the spin-offs, the practical spin-offs might be. And to just give you an example, you know, we talked about general relativity and this warping of space and the passage of time. You might think, well, even if that's true, that's just intellectual titillation for, for physicists sitting around in their white lab coats. But that's not the case because it turns out that the global positioning system units, uh, GPS, that whole system, depends on an accurate understanding of gravity. And so the satellites up in space that are orbiting Earth have clocks that send out signals, and those signals are then detected by, by your little device in your car. And the difference in time multiplied by the speed of light gives you the distance to that satellite. And if you know the distance to at least four satellites simultaneously, then you know where you are on Earth. And so in a nutshell, that's how GPS works. But the satellites up there have clocks that are running at a different rate than the clocks here on Earth's surface. And that's a general relativistic effect. Uh, special relativity also plays a role, the fact that the satellites are actually moving relative to us. But the main effect is this warping of space and time. And so if you just took the readings on the clocks and compared them with the readings here on Earth, you would get the wrong answer because those clocks are running at a different rate than the clocks on Earth. And so that has to be taken into account in order for GPS to work. So the physicists and engineers that designed and built GPS had to take Einstein's crazy-sounding theory of the warping of space and time into account. Otherwise, this, this uh, nice thing we now have with all of its commercial and military applications would not be a reality. So you never know what practical spin-offs there might be to research of this sort and a better understanding of the way nature works. That is a great answer, I have to tell you. <laughs> well, thank you. Now, on that, um, you mentioned that you need, if you know where, if you know the distance and uh, time um, of where any four satellites are, then you yes. can have an accurate GPS. Is it four because you're going in three directions um, in in space and then one direction in time? Is is that, so following the X, Y, and Z axis, but then also a time axis? Uh, it's, a, it's a little bit more subtle than that. Let me give you uh, the following example. If you know that you're 1,000 miles from New York City right now, then you can draw a circle with a radius of 1,000 miles on that um, uh, around that point, right? Sure. Then if you know you're you know, 500 miles from Chicago or something, you draw another circle. So then that circle intersect, those two circles intersect in two points, okay? And then you, let's say you say you're you know, 2,000 miles from Los Angeles or something. I'm just making these numbers up, so I don't know that those three circles will actually intersect. But <laughs> if they do intersect, they'll, they'll intersect in, in one point. Okay? Probably so you need a, Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so you, you needed three distances to have a single point of intersection on a plane. Sure, but you also want you, yeah, that's right. But you also want to know your up-down dimension. You want to know oh. if you're in a valley or on a mountain, right? 
you're not on a plane when you're on Earth's surface. Mm-hmm. So you need a fourth. Uh, you need a fourth satellite. You need a fourth circle from which you know the distance. That then uniquely determines your position, not only in space, but also, well, not only on Earth's flat surface over a limited region. You know, it looks flat, not that Earth is flat overall. No. Um, but you also know your up and down direction. And then you want a fifth or sixth satellite in in practice because you want some redundancy you want to check your work and also because you're moving in a car all those numbers are continually changing and so the more satellites you have the greater is the confidence you have that you're getting a correct trajectory when you're in your car okay so it is a little simpler than i thought it was just i was wondering if we're also trying to map our position in time. <laughs> well, you know, you get the time just from the running of your your own clock and your own device. So oh. that we get for free. Okay. But the clock, the clocks up in the satellites are running at a slightly faster rate because they're in a weaker gravitational field than the clocks here on Earth's surface. And so if you just took the difference in time and multiplied by the speed of light, you know, distance is speed times time you'd get a distance to that satellite, which is wrong because you haven't corrected for the fact that the clock itself up there is running along at a different rate. So you have to take that different rate into account. Then you calculate a difference between the emitted time and the received time. And so that time difference, once corrected, when multiplied by the speed of light, gives you the correct, reliable distance to that satellite. Hi, listeners. We're pausing the show for just a moment to let you know that nominations for the fourth annual Project Fibonacci STEAM Leadership Conference, taking place July 28th through August 3rd, 2019, are now open. The Project Fibonacci STEAM Leadership Conference is a one-week summer event for students entering 10th grade in high school through their junior year of college, where they'll get hands-on workshops with some of the brightest lights in the STEM and art fields, taking part in team-based, project-based learning with fellow scholars from all over the country. Space is limited, so educators, nominate your promising students now to be a STEAM scholar this summer and help them move forward full STEAM ahead. For more information and to sign up, go to projectfibonacci.org. And now, back to the show. So since they're moving at a different time uh, pace than uh, clocks on Earth, if we were in space next to it would it be observable to us as a as a phenomenon or would it just occasionally seem that clock's going a little fast yeah so that's a great question if you were moving along with the satellite in fact if you were in the satellite watching the clock you would not notice any difference of the sort because in einstein's theory of relativity what you see depends on your reference frame. So it's the opposite. So someone, yeah, yeah. So it's you know someone moving in a frame of reference that's. Um, let me say that again. So someone moving past you at a speed has a clock that runs at a different rate as seen by you, but not as seen by that other person. And similarly, two people in different gravitational fields will see each other's clocks running at different rates, but not their own clocks because they're in their own frame of reference. So in that case, you might say then, since most of us get our 
clock information from GPS, whether it's through an Apple Watch or a cell phone or anything like that, the onboard clock in your car, if that's connected to GPS, Mm -hmm. in effect, in trying to put us all on the same time, we're all being lied to slightly. Well, (laughs) uh, yes and no. The the point is is that the engine the physicists and engineers who designed GPS took the different rates into account and I think it wasn't hardware I think it was software it's through software although I'm not absolutely certain about that and so the clock reading that you have on your phone is already corrected for this difference in time so it's not that we're being lied to it's that we watching the satellite clocks would see a different time reading but in translating that to the clocks that we have here on the ground we would have to make a correction otherwise we truly would be lying to ourselves because we would be saying that our clocks are reading the same time as those clocks that are moving and in a different gravitational field and that 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 would be a false statement Right. So we would be lying to ourselves if we didn't make the correction. Okay. Now I get it. Thank you for yeah. that clarification. It's a su- it's a subtle point. Yeah. It, it's mm-hmm. it's a very high tech version in my mind of the seventeen forties and fifties experiments with chronometers and trying to figure out lines of longitude. Oh yeah, that was an enormous problem. You know, latitude was easy to figure out by looking, for example, at the altitude of Polaris, the North Star above your horizon. But the whole issue of navigation and longitude was a tricky one because clocks on Earth typically back then, you know, were pendulum clocks or whatever. But on a boat, especially one that's tossing and turning because of a storm, pendulums get all messed up, (laughs) typically. Yeah, so... It, it, it almost feels like it's the same problems, in fact, with either higher stakes or at least higher tech um, solutions and um, versions of them. So, Yeah, I would say b- both higher tech and higher stakes in the sense that it's definitely higher tech. You know, look at Moore's Law and the kind of technology we have now. Yes. But it's also higher stakes because, you know, airplanes and cars and especially self-driving cars are relying on accurate GPS coordinates in making decisions on what they do, you know, and they'll get collisions if they do the wrong thing. And back several centuries ago, the density of ships on the ocean was not that high that you had to continually worry about collisions and things like that. No, but it is kind of great that map making and accurate up-to-date maps for many centuries now and for the far foreseeable future is going to be continually keeping cartographers employed. <laughs> if you don't mind, I'd like to articulate an important point, and that is this benefit that you get from pure curiosity-driven research in the form of unanticipated spin-offs. Okay. A century ago, the founders of quantum physics, Einstein and Bohr and Heisenberg and Planck and Schrodinger, had not the slightest practical application in mind. They were not trying to make a better toaster or anything like that. They wanted to understand the nature of light 
and the existence of atoms, the stability of atoms. And there were some other issues as well, but those were two of the main ones. And they developed this whole new type of physics, quantum physics, just out of their curiosity-driven research. Now, you fast forward one century to today, and you cannot imagine today's world, today's high-tech world, without an understanding of quantum physics, of nanophysics. You know, we have the half-billion transistors on the head of a pin now, all of our electronic devices, any, any object that has a laser in it, et cetera, et cetera. That's all quantum physics, you know? And yet, it's the aftermath of a bunch of people sitting around trying to figure out the nature of light and the stability of atoms, issues that were not at all of practical importance at the time. Wow, you know? That is a great note to actually go out on right there. I need to get you back here sometime because there's so much more I want to talk with you about. Black holes and event horizons. Is there anything on the other side? Exploding stars? Uh, just all of it. And I hope I can get you back on here again before uh, 2019 uh, wraps up. Sure, it'll be a pleasure, Dan. Thank you very much. Uh, Dr. Alex Filipenko, astrophysicist at UC Berkeley. How can people find you online? Well, there's the astro.berkeley.edu website, which is our astronomy department website. And that actually has my email address. So if they send me a question, I'll try to answer. On the other hand, I get lots and lots of questions. So I have time to only answer a minority of them and certainly don't have a time to have an extensive conversation back and forth with someone. But uh, they can Google me. They can look up various videos that I've produced through the great courses. Are you They're doing any more of those? Well, I'm thinking about it. I, I've got a, an idea in mind that I'll pitch to the great courses and we'll see what they say. But there's also many public talks I've given that are online. I've uh, been on a number of documentaries like How the Universe Works and the Universe series that can be found on the History Channel and the Science Channel, the Discovery Channel, things like that. So I'm, I'm out there quite a bit. People can find some of my public lectures and TV programs quite easily. Terrific. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, Dan, and I think it's great that you're doing this podcast. That wraps up today's conversation on Steamcast. I'd like to thank Dr. Alex Filipenko for being this week's guest. You can reach out to him through his email, which can be found on the Berkeley Astronomy Department website. Steamcast is a production of the Project Fibonacci Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit educational organization whose mission is to introduce our youth to a culture of interdisciplinary STEAM learning teaching them to become creative, independent leaders of community researches. You can learn more by going to projectfibonacci.org. Steamcast was written, produced, and hosted by me, Dan Kostelik. You can follow me on Twitter at Dan Kostelik. Technical support is by Andrew Berger. The music in the show is by The Live and Breathe from the album Reet. You can find it on iTunes or wherever you listen to music. Please subscribe and write the show five stars on the podcatcher of your choice. Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. On Facebook, we can be found at facebook.com slash Project Fibonacci. Same thing for Instagram. And on Twitter, we are at ProFibonacci. That's P-R-O-F-I-B-O-N-A-C-C-I. Thanks for listening. Well, Dan, thanks so much for talking to me, and full steam ahead.